Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 1 podcast. In this episode, we go over the topic called the nephron from the renal section on MedBullets.com. We'll talk about the proximal convoluted tubule, the thin descending loop of Henle, the thick ascending loop of Henle, and the distal convoluted tubule and the collecting duct. Let's start with the proximal convoluted tubule. The major function of the proximal convoluted tubule is isoosmotic reabsorption of solutes and water, which is imperative for maintaining the extracellular fluid. This is accomplished by a number of cotransporters, such as the sodium glucose cotransporter, or the SGLT, where 100% of the filtered glucose is reabsorbed, the sodium amino acid cotransporter, where 100% of the filtered amino acids are reabsorbed, the sodium phosphate cotransporter, and the sodium hydrogen cotransporter. Note that the proximal convoluted tubule can be divided into an early and late proximal convoluted tubule. Sodium is reabsorbed in both portions of the proximal convoluted tubule, but via different mechanisms. In the early proximal convoluted tubule, sodium is primarily reabsorbed with bicarbonate. 85% of the filtered bicarbonate is reabsorbed. Sodium is also reabsorbed with glucose, amino acids, and other organic solutes such as lactate and citrate. In the late proximal convoluted tubule, sodium is primarily reabsorbed with chloride. There are a number of hormones that act on the proximal convoluted tubule, and they include parathyroid hormone and angiotensin II. Parathyroid hormone inhibits the sodium phosphate cotransporter, and angiotensin II stimulates the sodium hydrogen exchange. Medications that act on this portion of the nephron include carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, such as acetazolamide, and osmotic diuretics, such as mannitol. Let's now talk about the thin descending loop of Henle. The thin descending loop of Henle is permeable to water, but not ions. Water moves out of the loop into the interstitium, resulting in the tubular fluid becoming more concentrated, or hyperosmotic. Next up, the thick ascending loop of Henle. The major function of the thick ascending loop of Henle is to reabsorb sodium chloride without water. This is accomplished by the sodium-potassium chloride cotransporter, also notated as the Na plus K plus 2Cl minus cotransporter. Loop diuretics, for example furosemide, act on these transporters. Reabsorption of solutes without water makes the tubular fluid dilute, thus why this is the diluting segment. There is also paracellular reabsorption of calcium, also notated as Ca2+, and magnesium, also notated as Mg2+. This is driven by the lumen-positive potential difference generated by potassium backleak. And lastly, let's discuss the distal convoluted tubule and the collecting duct. The distal convoluted tubule can be divided into an early and late distal convoluted tubule. The early distal convoluted tubule reabsorbs 5% of the filtered sodium via a sodium chloride cotransporter. This is the site of action of thiazide diuretics such as hydrochlorothiazide and metolazone. Thiazides are organic acids that bind to the chloride site of the transporter. It is impermeable to water and thus dilutes the tubular fluid, thus called the cortical diluting segment. Relative to the late distal convoluting tubule and collecting duct, both of these segments of the nephron are anatomically and functionally similar. There are two major cell types, principal cells and alpha intercalated cells. With respect to principal cells, sodium is reabsorbed via epithelium sodium channels or the ENAC. Aldosterone increases sodium reabsorption via increased protein synthesis of ENAC and sodium potassium ATPase. 
Aldosterone also stimulates potassium secretion via acting on potassium channels. Potassium-sparing diuretics, such as spironolactone, amylaride, and triamterine, impair sodium reabsorption. Note that spironolactone is an aldosterone antagonist, whereas amylaride and triamterine act at the level of the sodium channels. Antidiuretic hormone, or ADH, increases water permeability of the principal cells. This is accomplished by binding to V2 receptors and subsequently resulting in an increased aquaporin-2 channel expression. There is also a calcium-sodium exchange in the basolateral membrane of the principal cell, and parathyroid hormone increases calcium reabsorption by increasing the exchange activity. Alpha-intercalated cells are responsible for the secretion of hydrogen that is accomplished by two active transport mechanisms. One, hydrogen ATPase, and two, hydrogen-potassium ATPase. Hydrogen ATPase is an enzyme that is stimulated by aldosterone, and the hydrogen-potassium ATPase allows for hydrogen to be secreted in exchange for potassium. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. A 39-year-old woman presents to the clinic with complaints of constipation for the past two weeks. She reports that it has been increasingly difficult to pass stool to the point that she would go for two to three days without going to the bathroom. Prior to this, she passed stool every day without difficulty. She denies weight changes, headaches, chest pain, or abdominal pain, but endorses fatigue. Her past medical history is significant for two episodes of kidney stones within the past three months. A physical examination is unremarkable. Laboratory studies are done and show the following results. Serum sodium is 138 milliequivalents per liter. Chloride level is 97 milliequivalents per liter. Potassium is 3.9 milliequivalents per liter. Bicarbonate is 24 milliequivalents per liter. BUN is 10 milligrams per deciliter. Glucose is 103 milligrams per deciliter. Creatinine is 1.1 milligrams per deciliter. Thyroid stimulating hormone is 3.1 microunits per milliliter. Calcium level is 12.1 milligrams per deciliter, and phosphate is 1.2 milligrams per deciliter, and its normal range is 2.5 to 4.5 milligrams per deciliter. What is the most likely explanation for this patient's low phosphate levels? 1. Chronic renal disease caused by recurrent renal stones. 2. Defective G-coupled calcium-sensing receptors in multiple tissues. 3. Hereditary malfunction of phosphate absorption at the small brush border. 4. Increase in calcium-sodium co-transporter activity at the distal convoluted tubule. Or 5. Inhibition of sodium phosphate co-transporter at the proximal convoluted tubule. And the correct answer choice is answer choice 5. Inhibition of sodium phosphate co-transporter at the proximal convoluted tubule. This patient has primary hyperparathyroidism, marked by fatigue, constipation, and recurrent renal stones in the setting of high calcium and low phosphate levels. Patients with primary hyperparathyroidism have low phosphate levels due to parathyroid hormone's inhibitory effect on the sodium phosphate co-transporter at the proximal convoluted tubule. Remember, primary hyperparathyroidism is commonly a result of parathyroid adenoma or hyperplasia. Excessive levels of PTH are secreted, which act at the intestines and bones to increase calcium and phosphate uptake. 
However, phosphate is ultimately excreted through the urine as PTH inhibits the sodium phosphate cotransporter at the proximal convoluted tubule and thus reduces phosphate reabsorption overall. Patients are often asymptomatic but may complain of weakness, constipation, abdominal or flank pain, and or depression, all of which are often referred to as stones, thrones, bones, groans, and psychiatric overtones. Laboratory values will demonstrate high levels of calcium and low levels of phosphate. Let's now review the incorrect answer choices. Answer choice 1. Chronic renal disease caused by recurrent renal stones is unlikely as this patient only had two episodes in the recent past. This is unlikely to cause permanent scarring that would lead to chronic renal disease. In addition, her creatinine levels are within normal limits. Answer choice 2. Defective G-coupled calcium-sensing receptors in multiple tissues describes familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia. Patients often have normal to slightly elevated PTH levels with normal phosphate levels. Answer choice 3. Hereditary malfunction of phosphate absorption at the small brush border is not a known pathophysiology of low phosphate levels. And finally, answer choice 4. Increase in calcium-sodium co-transporter activity at the distal convoluted tubule describes the action of PTH at the DCT. This, however, only affects the calcium levels and not phosphate. In summary, parathyroid hormone acts on the proximal convoluted tubule by inhibiting the sodium phosphate co-transporter, which is responsible for phosphate reabsorption. Next question. A 69-year-old gentleman presents to his primary care physician for a checkup. It is the first time he has come to the physician in years. The patient has no significant past medical history, and his family history is unknown as he was adopted. Upon obtaining the patient's vitals, you notice he has a pulse of 100 per minute and a blood pressure of 180 over 100 millimeters of mercury. On physical exam, the patient has a ruddy complexion and is obese. The patient is unpleasant and seems to walk with a limp. It is recommended that the patient start an exercise program, the DASH diet, and lose weight. The patient is also started on a drug that affects the third portion of the nephron. Which of the following medications is this patient started on? 1. Lisinopril 2. Acetazolamide 3. Tolvaptin 4. Furosemide or 5. Hydrochlorothiazide And the correct answer choice is answer choice 5, hydrochlorothiazide. Hydrochlorothiazide is a thiazide diuretic that acts by blocking the sodium chloride transporter primarily in the distal convoluted tubule or the third portion of the nephron. It is commonly a first-line medication for blood pressure control in Caucasians. Remember, the nephron of the kidney has distinct portions specialized for the resorption of various electrolytes and water. The proximal tubule completes isotonic reabsorption of all of the glucose, all of the amino acids, and most of the bicarbonate, sodium, chloride, and water. The descending limb of the loop of Henle passively reabsorbs water driven by hypertonicity of the medulla, while the ascending limb actively reabsorbs sodium, potassium, and chloride and indirectly induces the paracellular reabsorption of magnesium and calcium. The distal convoluted tubule actively reabsorbs sodium and chloride and is important for calcium absorption. Let's now review the incorrect answer choices. Answer choice 1, 
lisinopril, is an ACE inhibitor and is the blood pressure medication of choice in diabetics as it reduces the hyperfiltration damage that occurs in the kidney. It does not act on the nephron, but rather decreases production of aldosterone and allows the efferent arteriole to dilate, reducing GFR. Answer choice 2. Acetazolamide acts by blocking the effects of carbonic anhydrase primarily in the proximal convoluted tubule or area 1 of the nephron. It is used to reduce intracranial pressure in pseudotumor cerebri, intraocular pressure in acute glaucoma, and is used in high-altitude sickness. Answer choice 3. Tolvaptin is an ADH receptor antagonist that acts on area 4 of the nephron. ADH typically causes insertion of aquaporins in the collecting tubule, resulting in increased free water uptake. Caffeine and alcohol also induce a temporary diabetes insipidus as well that also act on area 4 of the nephron. And finally, answer choice 4, furosemide, is a loop diuretic that exerts its effects on the ascending loop of Henle or area 2 of the nephron. Loop diuretics are not used long-term for blood pressure control as they can lead to adaptations in the nephron that negate their effect. Note that acute pulmonary edema is an indication for loop diuretics. And that's all for this review about the nephron. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 1 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from these MedBullets Step 1 podcasts so far, please consider leaving us a 5-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you are not already, be sure to follow MedBullets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here on the MedBullet Step 1 podcast.